0: All right, team. Welcome back to The Man Talk Show. I am Connor Beaton, and today I have a guest that I am excited about, that I have wanted to interview and speak with for a number of years, actually. And he's come on the scene more and more in the last little while. Uh, If this is one of those episodes that you know somebody in your life is going to enjoy, then certainly man it forward. This also might be something that you want to watch on YouTube. So just as a heads up, We are starting to put all of these conversations on YouTube and all of my mini episodes are on YouTube. So if you like watching versus just listening, this might be something that you want to do. So head on over to YouTube and follow me at Mantalks on YouTube. Okay. Joining me today, Mr. Scott Galloway, Professor Scott Galloway. He is a professor of marketing at the New York University Stern School of Business, no big deal, and a public speaker, author, podcast host, and entrepreneur. In 1992, he founded a company called Profit, a brand and marketing consultancy firm. And in 1997, he founded Red Envelope, one of the earliest e-commerce sites. 2005, he founded the digital intelligence firm, L2 Inc., which was acquired in March of 2017 by Gartner for $155 million. (laughs) Uh, So he has done some pretty cool stuff. I could go on with his bio. You may have heard of him because he's written a a few books. One of them is called The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. The second one was called The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning, which made him quite popular on shows and uh, YouTube channels. He also wrote Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity, and his latest book that came out last year, Adrift, America in 100 Charts. So- Interestingly enough, that's not necessarily what we talk about. We actually get into, Scott has been talking a lot lately about young men, men in society and culture and how culture is addressing the decline of men, specific decline of young men within our society. And so we talk about some of that data, some of that research. We talk a little bit about Uh, Why Scott thinks this is happening, what might be producing this decline within young men and men within North America, and then we talk a little bit about what we can do about it. So there's a lot of personal experience that he shares, his own his own story, his own upbringing, uh, which is fascinating and impactful. But Scott's just one of those guys that I think is doing some really really phenomenal work, and the way he speaks about some of these topics and issues is really important. So I am excited thank you so much for tuning in. Again, man it forward and share this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy it. And without any further delay, please welcome Mr. or Professor Scott Galloway. All right, Professor Galloway, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Connor. It's a real honor and a pleasure to have you here. I've been, you know, sort of watching your work and following you for a while and have some some great guests coming on in the, you know, the first sort of quarter of 2023. And, and you're one of the conversations that i've been looking forward to so let's start off with how i always start off which is tell us tell the audience a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today yeah i knew he said off mike you're gonna ask that and i mean started on it, it i'm gonna
1: cheat it's a toss-up between two moments and they're both pretty like of a better from pretty serious moments um my mom got very sick when I was in graduate school and ultimately you know, got the cancer that was going to kill her. And I came home. She called me at grad school and said, come home. I'm not doing well. And we were underinsured. We didn't have a lot of money. It was me and my mom. My mom was a secretary. And they had discharged her from the hospital early after surgery. She was just in a very bad way. And I was 26 in my first year of grad school or 25. And I immediately thought, okay, I can solve this. I can fix this. And started calling around, couldn't find a hospital that would take her. They said, bring her to the emergency room. And I, as I thought that through, that was going to be an awful experience. Uh, so I thought, oh, I'll get a nurse to come take care of her. Nurses were 55 bucks an hour even back then, and I didn't have the money. And I just remember feeling a sense of real kind of emasculation, frustration, that like kind of my one job to take care of the, you know, the person who raised me, uh, I couldn't do. And it was very uh, humiliating, but it was also very motivating. And that is, up until that point, I had been— kind of your classic underachiever, and just did enough to get by. And that really kind of focused me on what I would need to do, or at least try to do to um, have more success such that I could take care of my mom. That was very motivating. And then the other thing was when my oldest son was born, I was, you know, it wasn't a hallmark moment for me. I felt crazily nauseous. I couldn't stand. And it wasn't because of the experience, which is, by the way, a gross experience. But Uh, I was terrified, and that is, I'd had some success, but I hadn't saved as much money as I should have given how much money I'd made. And again, I'm like, shit, it's no longer about me, and and I'm not where I need to be. So these are very intense moments that call on very instinctual feelings. But yeah, not being able to take care of my mom at that moment, and then a fear that I wasn't going to be able to take care of my son. These were very Mm. seminal, motivating
0: moments in my life. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I think it, first off, the classic underachiever really resonates with me. <laughs> that was sort of my MO, you know, average yeah. and best for pretty much everything that I did uh, for a very long time. And, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because I've, I've talked about this on the show a little bit, but I'm, I've kind of been going through a little bit of both of what you've been talking about. My mom was diagnosed with terminal stage four cancer. Um, not too long ago, r- kind of right after my son was born, my first son. Mm-hmm. And it's been, a, I think what you just described has been um, sort of a summation of my experience, you know, this sort of, how, how do I save her? How do, how do I support her? But then also stepping into the role of fatherhood of, you know, am I ready to sort of tend to or take care of this new, you know, little life form <laughs> that yeah. has entered into my sphere, which is a beautiful, wonderful awe-inspiring experience unto itself, but also can be uh, pretty pretty stressful. Absolutely. I think one of the things that stands out to me about what you're saying is, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's almost like there is something about being under duress or going through a, a really hard time that caused you to step, step up or step into a more competent version of yourself. And I know for myself, I kind of bottomed out in my life at one point in my late 20s. And that set set me on a different trajectory. Do you think that there's something that is required that, that we need as maybe as men or as human beings where we kind of need to experience that type of hardship to step up? Or is that just a test of character? Like what role would you say that that plays in our lives?
1: Yeah. I mean, the way you get strong is you stress your muscles, you damage them and they grow back stronger. A certain amount of adversity is a key component of success because you learn how to get through it and you realize that you can, can get through it and you develop a certain mm-hmm. level of resilience. Part of the problem we have at universities now is freshman suicides have become so prevalent that we have training now on how to recognize someone who is perhaps having dangerous thoughts of self-harm. And, mm-hmm. and the reason this is happening is that so many of us who are blessed with resources naturally want to do good things for our kids so, we engage what has been termed concierge or bulldozer parenting. And we use, some, we use so many sanitary wipes on their lives, they don't develop their own immunities. And then they get to college and they get the heartbroken or they get their first D and they literally freak out. And there's all sorts of research that supports this. The reason that the Gettys and the Carnegies don't control the world or the DuPonts is because rich kids usually spend their parents' money. The, the children of immigrants are the most successful because they look at the parents, they look at how hard they work, they look at the success they recognize, so that hard work, and they learn. Mm-hmm. The children of rich kids generally decrease the wealth. I mean, they, they have more opportunities, but they generally don't go on, you know, to, to build. The saying that I, I struggle with, and you'll struggle with this, I have 12 and 15-year-old boys. And I always say, if I had what they have, I wouldn't have what I have. And that is, what on earth is their motivation? I just send my kids, I'm not, I, I live in London, I'm not there. So I send them tickets to go to, you know, Tottenham Hotspurs versus Man City. And I love my kids, so I want to surprise them delight lot of them, so I buy them great seats. Mm. You know, we're I my kids don't only really have a safety net. They have a fucking cashmere safety net. And so what exactly, and it, it amazes me when I meet rich kids that are motivated, because I'd be like, if I had had money, If I had had money, the only two things I know would have been in my life are cocaine and a Range Rover. That's Mm -hmm. how I would have responded to resources. But I didn't have those things, so it was very motivating. But, you know, walking through coals, getting calluses, uh, appreciating how hard life can be, you're entering a different phase of life right now, Connor. Mm -hmm. And it's what I call the shit-gets-real part of your life. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you have a kid. And while we're supposed to pretend that it's joyous and amazing, and it is— It's also wildly stressful, and I don't care I'm sticking to this. Babies are awful. They're just awful. It's a science experiment to keep the thing alive. It it provides you with absolutely nothing, especially as a dad. You're useless. Your job is to support uh, your partner and make sure that he or she or whoever the primary caregiver is has the resources they need and get a night nurse. And also your job is to go out there and hunt the fucking mastodon and bring home the meat. And I know that sounds sexist, and sometimes— Being an adult or being a man means getting out of the way if your partner is better at that money thing than you are. But your job primarily is to take, I think every man should start with the assumption that he is going to take economic responsibility for their household. And it's really stressful because it's a competitive market out there. And everyone else is trying to get more than their fair share. And so you're out there. And as a man, you're kind of judged full stop based on your economic success or lack thereof. If you live, where do you live, Connor? Uh, Upstate New York. Okay, so you're in upstate. It's not as bad, but it's still between schools, between living, you know, once you have a kid, it's kind of two, if not three bedrooms right away. You start thinking about if there's good public schools, you're blessed. But in America, there's a lot of areas where you think, well, no, the perfect angel needs to go to private school. Maybe your wife or your partner takes some time off to take care of the kid. And all of a sudden you go from needing X per year to 3X. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a path to that, it's really stressful and hard. And then you're going through the other very stressful thing that is unimaginable when you're 18, and that is you, someone you love, love a great deal and who loves you immensely has gotten sick and, and may die. And that, is just, that reality is so harsh that the human brain just can't wrap its head around it. Until it happens to you, it can't describe the feeling. It seems it's the most unjust thing that will ever happen to you, and you can't imagine it. So I wrote a book on happiness and all the studies say the same thing on an, if you look at the y-axis is happiness and the x-axis is age, all the data comes back across geographies, ethnographies, uh, income classes. It's a smile. Zero to 25 is Star Wars, beer, football games, making out of prom. It's generally pretty happy. And all the shows about being awkward in seventh or eighth grade. Okay. But there's a lot of fun as a kid. And then 25 to 45 is what I call the shit gets real part of your life. It's just hard. You're not going to have a fragrance named after you. You're not going to be senator. And you're like, oh, wait, I was supposed to be the, you know, everyone, my parents in college told me I was amazing. And what do you know? It doesn't feel like I'm amazing right now. And then uh, something wonderful happens in your 50s and in your 40s, if you're more soulful, and that is you start finding joy and appreciation in things you didn't before. And hopefully your kids get less awful. Hopefully you get a little bit economic security. Hopefully, you've kind of settled into relationships that, that are more productive, hopefully a little bit economic security. And it's just weird. You start finding joy in places you didn't. I remember I was telling the story of my mom. I used to go to this deli called Junior's Deli on Westwood Boulevard in West L.A., right above Pico. And every week, she'd order the same thing, lox eggs and onions. And it would come with a side salad or something. And the salad, this stupid little salad, in the little wooden bowl would come. And she'd stop me, and she'd put her hand on my hand. And she'd like isn't this beautiful? Like, we were supposed to just pause for a moment and enjoy the beauty of the salad. And I, you know, you're 13 and you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) And then as you get older, it's like, I, one of the many reasons I miss my mom is I would love to just share this. There's just times when I'm walking through the park with my dogs and I see a fox and I am so stilled by that moment. Like I'm not into wildlife or anything. And you just like, even 10 years ago, and especially 30 years ago, it would have been just like, oh, there's a fox. And it just would run by. And now I just stop and wonder. And I don't know if it's the recognition of the finite nature of life, something happens to your brain. But I always tell people kind of 25 through 45, if you're stressed, if you're economically insecure, if your relationships are stressed, if you feel insecure about your achievements, if having a family seems to be like not the Hallmark Channel moment you thought it was going to be. I say, okay, that's exactly where you should be. And the key is every day to keep, keep on keeping on, try hard, one foot in front of the other, that happiness waits for you. But yeah, you're in, you're in Vietnam right now. A young man whose parent is
0: sick and who just had a kid. There's just no getting around it. This is a stressful time in your life. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like grief in one hand and gratitude in the other, you know, mm-hmm. or joy in the other. <clears throat> because there is something, I mean, my son's almost two now. And he's, he's in a very interesting phase. I can, all, like I can hear him upstairs right now running around scratching the mm-hmm. shit out of my floors. And so, child <laughs> proofing your house. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. But I, I think one of the things that stood out is, you know, I, I didn't grow up in, in wealth and yeah, I struggled financially for a long time, but have managed to, to do fairly well for myself. My wife and I have managed to do very well for ourselves. And one of the things, admittedly, that I've grappled with is, I think I've seen what you have been describing you know in the sense that many of the people that I know who were born into affluence and extreme wealth or even just a good amount of wealth have struggled to find a, a depth of motivation to go out into the world and find some sort of path that's meaningful to them and to contribute and so I'm I'm actually just curious from a, a personal level how how you handle both ends of the spectrum you know like what would you say to people who who are struggling financially and, and trying to raise their kids in a family. And then what would you say to people that do have that affluence and kind of are aware of that factor of that, you know, that elephant in the room that maybe their kids won't want to work as hard. Like wh- what do you do with them? You know, cause this is something that I've thought about 15, 20 years down the road. It's like, do I cut my son off and just say, there's nothing there for you and I'm going to spend it on a Porsche and, you know, traveling the world for years at a time or, like how how do you think about handling some of those situations? I uh, know I'm I'm basically yeah. asking you for like massive life advice right now, I'm, I'm writing, <laughs> which you're like I wish you didn't ask me that question. <laughs> this is this is. A I'm hard writing
1: one. a I'm writing a book on um, called the Algebra of Wealth, and that is how to uh, strategies for establishing economic security because it's money is something we don't talk about a lot, especially as men. We're just supposed to be ballers that figure it out silently. And it's just, in a capitalist society, it's just hugely important. There's no getting around it. And they say money isn't everything. Right, relationships are everything. But without a certain level of economic security, relationships are just strained. Kids who live in homes that are economically strained have uh, greater standing blood pressure. You're more likely to have a stroke, be obese, suffer from cardiac problems, be depressed, have violence in the home when you go below a certain level of economic security. So I think it should be a kind of a family mission. And that mm-hmm. is, all right, you know, look, we're not, my mom was very straight with me. I, I remember when my two best friends in seventh grade took off from Emerson Junior High School for a private school, Windward, because they started busing. And I'm going to be honest, the, the, the initial integration efforts in LAUSD for a 12-year-old were shocking for us and for them. And the school was violent. It was strange. It was just a weird place. And so my two friends immediately got pulled out and sent to private school. And I went home and said, Okay. Um, I need to go to private school. I need to go to Windward. And my mom sat down with me and said, okay, uh, Scott, it's time you knew. I'm a secretary. I make $18,000 a year. Let me take you through our budget. And it's just like, for the first time, I'm like, oh, money's a thing. And I don't have as much as my friends. And we lived in a nice neighborhood. We lived in a small condo in a nice neighborhood. And most of my friends were affluent. And just kind of letting me in on the joke and showing me what costs what Helped me. And money came, not a little bit of a game, but a strategy I I sort of understood at an early age. And I think bringing your family in on these efforts and Mm -hmm. also being very serious about it. This is how much we need every month, budget. This is what everyone's expected to do to contribute. Your contribution is to be thoughtful about how much money you spend or whatever, you know, turning off the lights, you know, whatever it might be, helping out, cleaning. We used to clean the house on Sunday. you know, we didn't have people cleaning our house. Every Sunday morning, we got up and we cleaned the house. And uh, I think involving your family and saying, okay, you know, economic, some level of economic security is something we're all engaged in because it's bad for our family when we're not. It's stressful for me, mom and dad. It's stressful for you. So here's our budget. Here's how we get past that. This is each each of our jobs. Because Economic security isn't a function of how much you make. It's kind of more a function of how much you spend. Mm -hmm. And you can be very happy and economically secure if you just kind of live like a stoic and don't get into that lifestyle creep and, you know, all the stuff that Susie Orman talks about, credit card debt, not, you know, ignoring your expenditure. So that's on the the side if you're struggling. And by the way, it doesn't always work. Some families just have a tough time their whole life. The other side, I don't know Um, (laughs) how to— how to instill a level of grit with your kids. This is something we all struggle with who are blessed with some level of economic security. And what I, can t- I observe is all my friends talk a really big game about cutting their kids off after college. They all say the same thing, or most of them. They're going to get whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. I'll pay for their college, and then boom, it's over. You're on your own because that's important, right? And this is what happens. They graduate from college, usually, and they're good kids. Most of them are good kids, Right. And they're like, they can't live in New York. They get a job, a decent job, making $50,000, $55,000 a year, which is decent for a recent college grad. But they can't live near their parents. They can't live in the, anywhere near the same neighborhood. So they said, well, let's just help them out. Oh, they have a kid. We want to help them buy a house. So you give them some money. What, what 28-year-old? I bought a house at 28. What 28-year-old can buy a house right now? Mm. I don't care what city you're in. So you help them a little bit more. And slowly but surely, you're kind of supporting your kids. And it's easy to talk a big game, but it's not like they're drug addicts that you're cutting them off. It's that they're good kids, or this is what I see happening, and they don't end up dependent upon you, but they end up kind of needing your support, and it's hard to break out. And it's a societal issue because for the first time in history, a 30-year-old is, first time in history of the U.S., a 30-year-old isn't doing as well as his or her parents were at the age of 30. If you're under the age of 30, you're 24% less wealthy than you were 40 years ago, People over the age of 70 are 72% more wealthy. So we have tilted the economic table towards old people and incumbents. And so it's just harder. It's economically more stressful for young people. Now, what I try and do is I'm trying to instill some level of grit in my kids. I try to get them involved in sports. I try to push them physically. My dad gave me a gift, and that was physical fitness. He got me doing burpees and sit-ups and this Royal Navy workout when I was like 11. And that stuck with me pushing myself really hard in college sports gave me a sense of confidence. My first job at Morgan Stanley, I used to work, I worked, I had to, I had no choice, work exceptionally hard. And that gave me a certain level, I think, of, of grit. But that desire, that economic desire to want to take care of people and, and also, quite frankly, a lot of it for me was, to be blunt, was sex. I noticed my senior year, or junior year, senior year in the fraternity at UCLA, like, all of a sudden, women started being drawn to the guys whose parents had homes in Aspen, mm-hmm. right? And people will find that a sexist statement. I'm like, it's observable. The guys who came from wealth seem to get more than their fair share of mating opportunities. And I just connected the dots that, okay, instinctively, women want someone who can provide them with the material and the lifestyle to take care of their kids, And I thought, well, I would really like to have a disproportionate opportunity set in terms of mating. And that involves economic security. And, you know, I want an unfair advantage. So all of these things start adding up, hopefully early. Grit, you're hopefully born in, you know, the the best thing you can do for economic security is to be born the right person at the right time in the right place. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is not your fault. And, you know, I would say much of your success and your failure isn't your fault. But trying to instill a level of grit in your kids you know you need to do it, but I don't have the answer. I do it through sports. I'm trying to get my 15-year-old a summer job at a place like CVS where he has to put up with the public. I mean, he's used to being on the other side saying, you know, do you have Sprite, he says to the flight attendant, and then mm-hmm. playing with his flat seat or whatever, right? So I want him on the other side of that coin. I, I grew up in service jobs from the age of like 13. I was a box boy. That was real important for me to get a sense for what it's like. And you learned some wonderful things. I, I, last point i will blabbering on, a lot of people are really generous to me. I remember, you know, a box boy at Westwood Ho. And occasionally, like, someone would give me 10 bucks, take their groceries out to the car, and they'd give me 10 bucks And it would, like, make my day. It's like, oh, my God, I can go to a, I can go to a movie in Westwood and to Swenson's. I, <laughs> if this happens twice, if lightning strikes and I can get a date, I can go on a date. I mean, it just—and so I'd like to think that some of my recognition of how easy it is to make someone's day— because people, I think people, uh, Americans are generally generous people. And anyways, uh, athletics, you know, values, grit, jobs. But mm. uh,
0: if you have any suggestions, I'm all ears because it's something I think we all struggle with. No, I mean, I, th- I think what you're laying out is is really solid. And, you know, first off, I, I, you're just such a good storyteller. I just got to say it. I, I love listening to you tell stories about past or whatever it is. I think in many ways, I mean— when you were talking about, you know, economic hardship, like I remember being a kid and a teenager and every week we would collect the bottles in the house and that was sort of like my responsibility and it was my first take at making money, you yeah, know, and great. it was something like that. that we did as a family and it was, and it was, it sort of reinforced to me that, you know, I, I sort of heard all the tropes, right? Money doesn't grow on trees and all that kind of stuff, but there was real world action that we were doing to try and just make 20 bucks, you know, or 30 bucks. And th- that, that always stuck with me. And then I think the other thing was working shit jobs. You know, I yeah. worked retail. Yeah. I worked yeah. as a gas jockey, you know, pumping gas yeah. when I was like 14. And I grew up in Northern Alberta. So I was pumping gas when it was like minus 30, minus 40 outside. Working construction when I was 18, 19 years old in the gravel mm-hmm. pits, right? And so I think all those things... I think what I'm going to try and do with my boy is give him the, like you're saying, the taste of the, you know, the other side and make sure that he has these experiences where he's working in jobs that give him a sense of what's out there. You know, I think one of the best things that I did was go and work construction in gravel pit in Northern Alberta at the age of 18 and 19 and be like, oh shit, like, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? And it really made me question, you know, a lot of things of the trajectory that I wanted my life to go. But anyway, I want to shift gears a little bit because I wanted to talk to you specifically about young men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've been talking quite a bit. Just first off, how did a professor of marketing at a business school become the the sort of like champion for the state of modern men in in our culture? Because I've noticed that you've just sort of been everywhere and sort of championing some of these things. I'm curious about why that's happened, or at least why you sort of picked up the torch to speak about some of these things.
1: I think you're being generous. And I would point people to people who really are experts on the topic, like Richard Reeves from the Carnegie—he's at Brookings, excuse me. He just wrote a book called— A Boys and Men. Yeah, A Boys and Men. And I just think it's—he just lays it out. He's kind of like, everything I was feeling and seeing, he kind of summarized in a wonderful book. And I think of myself who loves data, marinates in data, and I'm drawn to unconventional thinking. Like The data says something that is entirely different than the narrative. Mm. and the discussion, what's really interesting, the discussion around failing young men has flipped in two years, and that is in two years ago, if you were in any way advocating for men, it was seen as a zero-sum game, and that meant you were anti-women. If you were talking about struggling young men and we need to be focused on helping young men, that was seen as misogynist. Just from Mm. the get-go, it was like, boss, you've had a 400-year head start. How come your hair's on fire now when women have been you know, essentially abused and had real disadvantages over the last, you know, several thousand years. And so the conversation that we're having now, even some feminists are recognizing, you know, who wants more emotionally and economically viable men? Women. And there's something going on here. And I think the data reveals the following, and that is no cohort in America has fallen further faster in the last 40 years than young men. It used to be Uh, 40, 60 women to men in college. Now it's flipped at 60, 40. And it's even worse than that because men drop out at greater rates. Over the next five years, there's going to be two women who graduate from college for every one man. And you think, well, okay, fine. Women are finally getting their due. And you could say, well, when it was disproportionate towards women, we were there for women. We had affirmative action for women. We had affirmative action for people of color. And by the way, that was the right thing to do. But now that it's flipped, You know, you can walk through NYU and everywhere there are flyers, you know, women in consulting, angels of banking, all these female support groups, go girl. It's just everywhere. There's nothing for young men. And if you think about uh, some of the knock-on effects, the unintended consequences, I'm a progressive. But there's a general feeling in progressive politics that you don't want to acknowledge the difference between men and women. Because if you were to acknowledge a difference in the genders, you're somehow again discriminating against people who are non-binary or transgender. And that's not true at all. But there is, and studies show this, there is a, different, a difference from a very young age between people born as males and people born as females. Our prefrontal cortex doesn't mature as early. So an 18-year-old, two 18-year-olds applying to college The woman is effectively competing against a 16-year-old woman when she competes against an 18-year-old man. The executive function, the on, off, gas, and brake is just much more immature uh, for men. And you've seen the stats. Four times more likely to kill themselves, three times more likely to be addicted, 12 times more likely to be incarcerated. Uh, Women, more single women now own homes than men, which I think reflects a lot of progress. But the unintended consequence here, and there's all sorts of knock-on offense, is that one, uh, women, and we don't like to say this. Are typically drawn to men who are, what I say, taller than them. So physically taller. 50% of women say they're not attracted or wouldn't date someone shorter than them. It's probably more like 80%, because I think in a survey, women probably don't acknowledge it or take that number down because it sounds weird to say I wouldn't be interested in a man shorter than me. But also, women mate socioeconomically horizontally and up, men horizontally and down. And uh, three quarters of women say economic viability is very important in selection of a mate. It's only one in four for men. And here's the issue every year, Women are getting taller, and men are getting shorter. Mm. And so there's just fewer and fewer men who are viewed as economically viable, emotionally viable as mates. And so we're seeing mating rates going down. We're seeing what I call mating inequality, and that is technology tends to consolidate a market. Amazon consolidated, retail, social media consolidated, social, Google consolidated search or information gathering. Dating apps consolidate mating in the sense that women have a much finer filter. And because they have access to millions of people online, they can implement those filters. And 80% of the women are interested in the same 10% of men. So if you're a reasonable looking guy, that's not even number one, but you went to MIT and you're working at Google and your Rolex accidentally slips in your profile picture, you're going to get a massive number of swipe rights. If you're kind of 50 to 90th percentile, you do okay. The bottom half of men, are literally shut out of the market. I mean, shut out, no, zero swipes. And it creates this downward spiral of confirmation that the market, specifically women, aren't interested in them. And the problem is now that you have more than 50% of uh, young people and like two thirds of men living at home, they become that l- low self-esteem. And where it gets really ugly is they start blaming others. Specifically, they start blaming women. They become more prone to misogynistic content They become more prone to nationalistic content, blaming other people, whether it's immigrants for taking the jobs or women, whatever it might be. And they start buying into this notion that somehow it's women's fault and they need to take on this aggressive complexion around society and women. And I think that's really, really ugly. And the thing I hate about some of these, quote, unquote, and I use air quotes, advocates for men on TikTok, is the first 80 percent is great. Take responsibility for your life. Get really strong physically have a propensity towards action. And then it comes off the rails. They start talking about women as property and putting her in her place and crazy like metrics around what it means to be a man is like some sort of dominance or power over women. And it's just like, Mm. Jesus, how did this get so ugly so fast? And so I think whenever you start talking about an advocacy for men, correctly, progressives and women, their, their spidey sense goes off I'm like, okay, is this just repackaged violence against women? So in the last two years, the conversation has become much more productive. It's like, okay, let's acknowledge the data here. Men are really struggling. The reason I got interested in it is I relate to it. I, I just I was kind of going nowhere as a young man. It was upsetting. It was, I was lost, so I relate to young men. I have two young boys. I can see the difference between them and their female classmates it's like there. My boy's fifteen. He's literally a dope, and the fifteen-year-old, some of the fifteen-year-old girls in his class. I'm like, that's going to be the junior senator from Pennsylvania. I mean, <laughs> they're the, the girls are just shooting, and there's there's evidence showing that they're actually pulling away. That it's mm-hmm. the the delta is actually expanding, and so and I have a lot of friends who have the narrative goes something like this, and the people who are hands down most receptive and supportive of my content. Some young men like it. A lot of young men like it. Some say you're accusing us of being incels and we don't like it. A lot of feminists correctly say, um, have a real problem with this and are very cautious of this content. I understand that. Hands down, the people who are most supportive of this content is mothers. And I get emails that go something like this. Two daughters, one son, one daughter at Wharton, one daughter in PR in Chicago, and my son's at home in the basement vaping and playing video games. And there's just a a bunch of biological societal factors. A lot of the Kind of on-ramp jobs to the middle class have been outsourced in manufacturing. Uh, Men are told societally that they, you know, quite frankly, they should just be in their place. They try and tone down some of their masculine features around being aggressive. Colleges, the education system is biased against men. Two people brought into the principal's office for the exact same infraction on a behavior adjusted basis. The boy is twice as likely to be suspended. The behaviors and activities that colleges and schools reward, discipline, staying in your seat are just, just girls have just a much easier time with. So good for them. They, they, when we leveled the educational playing field and maybe even tilted it towards women, they have just blown by men. Mm-hmm. But now we need to look at, okay, if we want to have a society where people form the elemental foundations of a society, and that's relationships, if we want men who are economically viable, if we want to have kids and not go into population decline, what can we do to level up men just as we have attempted to level up other groups that are struggling, but the the fact that we're even having this dialogue without me waiting for—I'm not exaggerating—hundreds of tweets of hate and anger and accusations of misogyny now means the dialogue has expanded dramatically. And now I see my job is we have to come up with with a different definition of masculinity than the definition that is coming from some of these quote unquote male advocates, because there is a level of control and even like. Thinly veiled, packaged violence and mm-hmm. dominance and control over women—that is just wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think we need a different, if you will, a different vision of masculinity. And I'll provide a definition and then stop talking. But I think masculinity—it's a man-made construct or a person—you know—it's a societal construct. Femininity and masculinity—we can we can have it be whatever we want it to be. But masculinity is—you know—set of behaviors that are usually associated with people born as men. But I like to think that it's acquiring the skills and strengths such that you can protect for and advocate for others. That means early on you got to work on yourself. You got to be strong, you got to get certification, you got to be mentally fit, you got to work really hard and try and establish skills such that you can get economic security, you can be emotionally and mentally strong, and the whole point, the whole shooting match is such that you can protect others. You can provide for your family, you can provide for yourself, and then at some point in your life you can start advocating for and protecting others. That is true masculinity. That's what people in the military, that's what cops do, that's what firemen do, that's what and by the way, it's not, it's not just the domain of men. A lot mm-hmm. of women demonstrate wonderful masculine attributes. It's getting up at fucking six in the morning and going to work and doing shitty work such that you can protect your family economically. You know, there's a lot. It's, it's being physically strong, being mentally strong. But for God's sakes, it's never using your masculinity to in any way oppress people or to be some sort of predator for women physically or sexually or not have the same level of respect and admiration for women. So, uh, I think we need some traditionally you know, masculine figures to start mm-hmm. advocating a new form of masculine. And, and also to say that it's okay to be masculine. It's okay to wanna have sex. It's okay to take risks. It's okay to be sexually aggressive. It's okay to go up to a woman who, a strange woman who you're attracted to, and try and initiate a conversation. And if you don't know the difference between being aggressive and harassing someone, you got bigger problems. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay to ask someone out. even if the, I mean, the thing that came off the rails for me was that Gillette ad, and Richard Reeves talks about this a few years ago in the midst of the Me Too movement, where a guy sees a hot woman, and he jumps up to go talk to her, and then his friend kind of gets away and says, hey, bro, don't, that's not cool. Don't do that. It's like, that's where we are? We're not supposed to initiate contact with strange women? And I have found that a lot of women would actually appreciate respectful overtures of interest from men. And if they're not interested, you'll figure it out very fast. And guess what? You're both going to be fine. Mm -hmm. It is not a traumatizing event. And so I think there are male behaviors that we have to say to men, this is okay. This is okay. It's okay to embrace your masculinity. But we have a situation where professionally, biologically, societally, uh, educationally, men are really struggling. And then the last fact, and I promise I will stop here— Is that Pew did a study that one in three men under the age of 30 haven't had sex in the last year. Hmm. And people hear the word sex and their brain fires. I think of sex as a key step to an intimate relationship, and relationships are the basis of happiness in a productive society. And a huge cohort of men are not establishing the skills to have relationships. It confirms this insecurity they have, and they just go down a rabbit hole. And by the time they're 30, they haven't developed skills. Young men need guardrails. They need a girlfriend, a, a friend, a boss, parents to tell them, no, you got to put on a clean shirt. Mm. You know, my first girlfriend was like, okay, if you want to get high every night, you're not going to have sex with me. I'm, I'm not interested in a guy who has – who smokes pot every night, mm. right? My mom told me in implicit and explicit ways, you've got to get your shit together because, you are you know, you got to take care of me. You know, my friends were like, okay, boss, you need young men – I had my boss at work at Morgan Stanley used to take me to a conference room after meeting and go, you can't say that shit. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. Mm. You don't have to talk. If you don't have anything productive to say, don't say anything. I needed that. Young men need that. And so many young men are detaching
0: from so many relationships. They have no guardrails.
1: God, that was a rant.
0: (laughs) No, that was was great, man. I mean, I was trying to like track. I was like, oh my God, there's so many pieces that I want to touch on and and talk about. But, you know, I think that's true. I was kind of getting a chuckle because uh, you're talking about these guardrails, and I remember when my wife and I first met and first started dating several years ago. I was living in an apartment that was like your classic bachelor pad, where and it's not for a lack of money. I was sleeping on a on an air mattress. All of my books were stacked up beside my couch that was acting as my coffee table, and all of my socks had holes in them, which some of them still do. But you know, we when we started dating, she was like, "What is going on?" You know, and I was living in Vancouver. She was living in Manhattan. Here's this very successful, you know, one of the top marriage and family therapists in in Manhattan dating this guy. And she shows up into my apartment. She looks around and she's like, what is going on in here? And I was like, I just haven't prioritized it. And she's like, well, I don't know if I necessarily want to come back here unless you have like a fucking bookshelf, you know, and a real mattress on, on, on on a bed frame. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I should probably do that. So I think it's those types of things that, you know, whether it's from other women, other men that that I think are very important. And to your point about some of this rise of, I don't know what we'd want to call it, you know, misogynistic masculinity or whatever. I remember when I first started Man Talks, there was a lot of pushback, you know, and I was just bringing men together to have conversations. The whole premise was that they were going to share their defining moments as if they were going to die the next day to sort of impart some of their life's wisdom or lessons onto other men. And it was so interesting to see some of the pushback that I got initially because I started this eight or nine years ago. And now today, it's a very different thing. Like you're saying, I have mothers constantly DMing me, sending me emails, thank you so much for what you do, all that kind of stuff. And the conversation has radically changed or, you know, wives sort of saying, I'm going to send my husband your way or, you know, he's checking out your content or who else should he be listening to? So I think it's changing quite a bit. But I I have noticed this rise in this very rigid, one-dimensional version of masculinity that seems to be in opposition to the narrative that has emerged over the last decade or two. And I think somebody asked me about this the other day and I said, you know, I think what we... As men often look for, are frameworks. We love frameworks to operate in the world through, you know, to be able to see the world through a very specific framework. And I think that some of those movements give men who don't have a lot of masculine or male energy in their life, don't have a lot of order or frameworks or structure in their life, it gives them a very clear way to operate. It's like, here's mm-hmm. what a man is, here's what a woman is, here's what mm-hmm. it means to be masculine, here's what it means to be feminine. And if you just don't ever step outside those confines, then you're good. And so I think that it it creates this illusion of safety and security that is is oftentimes very crippling and can be abusive and can be very detrimental. And so, and again, that's not me advocating for it or, or supporting it in any way. I've just always tried to figure out like why are those frameworks, like why are people like Andrew Tate so appealing to some men? You know, because some guys really just love him, you know, and pedestal him. And so I'm curious to get your take on why do you feel like some of those structures, whether it's the red pill movement or the black pill movement or the Andrew Tates of the world, what is so appealing from your perspective to young men about those guys?
1: And it kind of all comes down to, in my view, if you were try to find ground zero, it goes back to what I said before. And that is the basis of evolution, the fundamental compact with any society, is that if I work hard and play by the rules, my kids will do better than me. Mm. And for the first time in our nation's history, that compact has been broken. And that is your son or your daughter, mostly your sons, are not doing as well as dad was at that age. And that creates tremendous shame and rage. That is a breakdown in a universal celestial compact we have. Hmm. And in America, 90 until world war, up until like the fifties and sixties, 92% of, of people born were going to do better than their parents. Wow. And now it's 49. Wow. And so the majority, and then for men, I think it's more like 40. So the majority of men, and then because of this kind of nimbious rejectionist culture, different talk show that makes housing more expensive, you have a lot of men at home. They're not doing as well as their parents were at that age. And there's just this feeling of shame and rage. And then by the way, try and get a date. It's not a good rap. Oh, I live at home. That's not a good rap. So you get confirmation from dating apps and you have constant reminders from your roommates, i.e. mom and dad, that you're failing. And so what do you do? Do you go into a hole and say, it's my fault and turn on yourself? And some do that. But a lot say, I want answers. They're very prone. If you look at the darkest moments in history, they all have one thing in common. They have a an economic cohort of young men who are failing economically and want answers. And the easiest answer is it's not your fault. It's not mm-hmm. your fault that you're being, you're being unfairly persecuted because of this group that's taking your jobs or this group that's um, coordinating against you or women, whatever it might be, or the woke movement, whatever it is, it's not your fault. So they're very open to that. In addition, I think the content you're talking about, a lot of it's really good. A lot of it's very productive. Uh, I see some videos from Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate. And by the way, I I shouldn't conflate the two because I think Jordan actually has a healthier set of messages and I think it calls on more science. But the majority of Andrew Tate's videos, I would say, are actually pretty productive. It leads to a dark, ugly place and a certain mentality around I own women. And if I'm a real man, I'm going to put a woman in her place and she's not ever, she doesn't ever go out without me. I mean, all this bullshit, right? And anyways, so the men are looking for answers, and they're very very prone to nationalistic content. Once a man comes off the rails economically and emotionally and doesn't have a viable partner to kind of keep him in check, weird things. He's more likely not to believe in climate change. Mm -hmm. He's a lot more likely to have a gun. He's just more likely to embrace nationalistic content. In some, he's just – he becomes a shitty citizen. And if you look at the most violent, unstable societies in the world, they all have the same thing in common. They have a disproportionate number of young, broke, and alone men. And men become violent. I mean, think about mass shooters in the U.S. We know who they are before we know who they are. Mm -hmm. They're young men who haven't attached to school, haven't attached to relationships, haven't attached to work. And that's not to say that every young man who's an introvert is a danger. I'm not saying that. I just don't think you can you can ignore that the most the most violent, dangerous societies in the world just have too many of this 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 one individual. And also, we have seeing population rate decline. We're seeing less household formation. So I think when you're a, a guy and you feel this rage and this shame, you're looking for excuses that it isn't your fault, and you're looking for someone who offers you the answer and gives you a channel for your rage and says, it's not your fault, do these things, it's this person's fault. And you become very susceptible. I mean, this is Trump. Trump came into a group of people who had been overlooked and who were mm-hmm. like, I've played by the rules, I've worked my ass off, and my life just isn't very good. And this is the guy that comes in, this is not your fault. It's immigrants coming over the border and taking your jobs. You know, all this, all this stuff, this blame game that happens. And I think men are especially susceptible to that message. So, I think it happens over and over again in history. People don't want to look inward. They want to mm-hmm. they don't want to focus on self-improvement. They want to find someone who convinces them says, "This is how you get out and this is a strategy." And I don't have a framework. What I tell I coach a lot of young men. The moment you say I'm up for coaching young men, your friends come out of the woodwork and saying, "Would you talk to our mm-hmm. 19-year-old son living at home?" I mean, they are everywhere. Literally everywhere. And I don't have a framework, but I start with a very simple very simple practice. I say, give me your phone, unlock it. I'm not going to judge you. And I look at their screen time. And I'm like, we're going to find 4 to 12 hours in your phone. And we're going to reallocate it. And we're going to write it down. We're going to look mm. at Twitter. We're going to look at Coinbase. We're going to look at Robinhood. We're going to look at video games. We're looking to look at porn. We're going to TikTok. You have no trouble finding 4, 8, 16 hours a week. I'm like, okay, first thing we're going to do, we're going to reallocate it into fitness. You're going to spend 3 to 5 hours a week. And I want you to get really fucking strong. And there's apps now that are free. It's certain, certain minimum level of nutrition when you're young. It's like you can get away with bad nutrition. It's more about moving and exercise. But I tell young men, you should be able to walk in any room and know that if shit got real, you could kill and eat everybody or outrun them. Mm-hmm. Like either you either need to be really strong or really fast and really fit. And you can do that at the age. If you're a 19-year-old, you know, I don't know about you, but I look back on when I was 19 I can't get over how crazy strong and fit I was. I mean, it's a marvel. It's a marvel. And to not embrace that, to not really enjoy it and get into it, you're going to be, and it's great for mental health. It's great for me to feel more attractive. You feel more kind. You're less likely to get into a bar fight if you're big and strong. You're the guy that has the confidence to de-escalate the situation. You can step in and tell people acting like idiots to just calm down. (laughs) So the first is fitness. The second is we're going to start making money. I don't care if it's flipping on a Dasher app or Uber or getting a job at a restaurant. You are going to start. The best way to get rich is to start by making a little bit of money because you get a taste for the flesh of money. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to join groups and organizations that give us random contact with strangers. Mm. Softball league, junior college class, church. Nonprofit, spending time at a food, anything, and try and find random contact and exposure to a bunch of strangers who are your age in the pursuit of something bigger than you. Meet people, meet people, make friends, meet people and ask them out to coffee that you think you might be attracted to. Whatever it is, whatever it is, get around strangers and try and do it every day. So it's fitness, it's starting to make a little bit of money. And it's getting in the company of strangers. And it's there's time. Give me your phone. I'll find the time, especially young men. They waste so much goddamn time. And then all I do the next week is I say, okay, I added up all this time. And I got 12 to 14 hours across these eight apps. Let's add it up again. Okay, you're doffed three and a half hours. What did you do with that three and a half hours? And just create a quick journal. I worked out. I spent a little bit more time. I got a job, whatever it might be. I'm like, that's it. It doesn't have to be complicated. I don't there's some kids who I can tell are really struggling. And I think that they should engage, reach out and do online therapy. It's pretty inexpensive now. And I think a lot of these kids, I'm not a trained adolescent psychologist, but sometimes I just feel like something going on here. This kid's really struggling. Hmm. And I think that it, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to a professional. And parents are sort of loath to do that sometimes because they're worried that they, they're just worried that um, they want to ignore it. They want to sweep it under the rug. And I, I'll say to parents, I'm like, I can't diagnose someone. I just get a weird feeling. This kid's really struggling. I think it, it would make some sense to reach out. Anyway, I don't have a framework. I'm just like, okay, fitness, get a taste for flesh, taste for money, and be in the company of strangers every day.
0: That's great, man. <clears throat> That's great. I, I 100% uh, have seen that those three things radically changed my own life. You know, I think I've always loved strength and working out. And that's something that I'm very grateful for. Like at a very young age, I found, like I played hockey as a kid and one of my hockey coaches when I was like 13 or 14 said, I was getting pretty tall pretty quickly. And he said, I think that you should probably start working out. And so I started checking it out. And then in high school, I was working out, you know, four or five days a week and it just changed everything. And then I I loved it. And it's, you know, still to this day, I'm 39 this year and my mission, you know, is to be in the best shape of my life by 40. And I mean, I've started pushing more weight than ever before doing MMA work, you know, those types of things. And then when I started to actually make decent money in my early thirties, it lit me up, you know, yeah. cause I had been broke for so goddamn long <laughs> yeah. and when yeah. I, and I just, you know, I hadn't really prioritized that. And when I did, there was something about it where I was like, oh, this is a very interesting game. You know, it's not this like horrendous thing. And I finally started to enjoy playing that game. You know, learning about stocks, even just buying a couple shares here and there. 100%, and, yeah. You know, getting into it. And I was like, oh, this is this is a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, um, gamify.
0: So, yeah. Yeah, I sort of gamify it. And so uh, I love that advice. I think, you know, we we unfortunately have to wrap up. I could talk to you all day and find value. And I think everything that we would dig into. But I want to wrap up with just a, a quick insight from you about pornography. And, you know, the number of men that I've seen that have come to work with me. I think some of the research shows that it's like, you know, on average between nine and 12 year olds, uh, boys are going to find porn Mm -hmm. and start watching it. And I'm curious how you talk about pornography in terms of how it relates to young men. You know, is there a way that you talk about it to your kids, to your boys? I know for me, I found porn at a really young age at like 13, 14 years old. And then Mm -hmm. this is back in the day, you know, dial up and having it (laughs) load line by line but I really had a problem in my late teens and early twenties, you know, watching hours and hours of porn a week. And I see a lot of men, especially young men reaching out to me now who are really struggling with porn, right? It's getting in the way of their relationships. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you talk about porn? What would you say to young men about pornography and the, the role that it can play? I know I'm sort of asking a big question in a short amount of time, but I'm curious to get your thoughts.
1: Well, I'm starting
0: to think about
1: this because I have a 15-year-old son, and I think it's okay to say to young men and boys going through puberty, it's okay to be horny. It's okay to masturbate. You know, we all do it. And what we have with pornography is the largest unsupervised experiment on young men in history because the reality is no professor wants to be the porn professor. So there's a total dearth of peer-reviewed research. Hmm. Who wants to be the porn professor? So people are interested in, you know, all kinds of research around social media, mobile impacts on kids, but no one wants to really do a lot of research around porn. And also it's difficult to get honest self-reporting. What I tell young men is like, look, I think being horny and wanting to engage in porn is entirely normal. And I would argue if you haven't had a period in your life where you're watching too much porn, that's probably more abnormal. Uh, that, that, that's okay. It's okay, right? The question is, how do you modulate it in an era of superabundance where sexual titillation is available everywhere on demand, whatever you want. You go down to a rabbit hole and find exactly what you want. And what I tell men is, I'm not gonna tell you, young man, again it goes back to the phone, I'm not gonna tell you not to be on you porn, but I'm gonna tell you to try and modulate and limit it. Because here's the danger of porn, in my view. One. It creates unreasonable expectations around what it means to be in a relationship with a woman and what you mm-hmm. should expect from a woman. And two, I think even worse, it flattens your mojo, And that is, why do I go through the pain I used to, when I was at UCLA, I, I missed a lot of classes, I would have missed more had I not thought there was a reasonable chance I might meet a woman and eventually have sex with her by going on campus. And if I'd had porn. It would have reduced my mojo to just ever leave the house because what you don't want is to be engaged in so much porn where the difficulty and the effort to get out, to put on a clean shirt, to engage in the really uncomfortable (laughs) scenario of initiating contact with a straight woman, of enduring rejection, of figuring out a way to ask a woman out, of figuring out a way to establish a dialogue with a woman on a date to, again, endure more rejection, to be thoughtful, and then, quite frankly, make your own bad porn. Without that motivation, you never get to a point of, or you're less likely to get to a point of establishing a meaningful relationship. Mm. And so, yeah, porn, I get it. It's like eating chocolate or drinking or smoking pot. I'm not going to tell anyone to abstain. I, I engage in all of those things, But I try and modulate them because what you don't want is a young man who loses his mojo to get out there. I am so hungry for a relationship. I am so hungry for sex. I'm going to walk up to a strange woman or I'm going to talk to, I'm going to try and initiate contact or I've met this really nice woman in my English class and I'm going to try and get coffee with her such that I can get to a date with her such that at some point I might have my own sex. You do not want to do anything. And society is telling you that that urge somehow makes you guilty of something. Well, it doesn't. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And as long as you're respectful, there's nothing wrong with that at all. I think more women would actually like more men to respectfully initiate contact. So the thing about porn, I don't know the answers around it. There hasn't been a lot of peer-reviewed research. Richard Reeves would argue that it's a small number of people consuming a disproportionate amount of porn every young man I know is very engaged in porn. And I'm like, it's like anything else. I'm not going to tell you to stop smoking pot, but smoke only smoke on weekends. We don't have work the next day. Right. I'm not going to tell you to not watch Netflix, but Jesus Christ, how much Netflix are you watching? I'm not going to tell you not to play video again and porn modulate, modulate, and don't let it get in the way of you getting out of making your own bad porn.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's very sage advice. And, uh, as a classic over consumer of almost everything. I had to modulate down to to net zero on almost all those things to have some real relationship to them. Um, Mm -hmm. But listen, Scott, Professor Galloway, I I really appreciate having you here. This is a great conversation. When does your next book come out on wealth? I'd love to have you back on to to dig into that. It's weird. It's supposed to be pencils down in March, but it takes like nine
1: months to print. It's weird. We can produce a Tesla in six weeks, but we can't (laughs) seem to manufacture a book in nine months. So I I think it's... I think it's the end of year or Q1 next year, but thank you for the
0: generous offer and I'll absolutely hit you up for it. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I just, my book just came out on the 31st of January and it was like a two What's and a half What's your book, year. Connor? It's called Men's Work. Uh, oh, nice. So I share some of my personal experience and then I'll send you a copy. I'll send you a How's copy. How's it doing? Really, really well. Oh, I yeah, it's, uh, I was number one on gender studies, number one in men's gender studies. I'm up there with, uh, Richard's actually coming on the show in a couple of weeks. So I have a...
1: Oh, so you're, you're killing it. That's yeah, great. It's, it's, I should it's be asking well. you
0: questions. It's going. It's going well. I'm not. Uh, I'm not steeped in the research like Mister Reeves is. But um, yeah. Well, listen, Professor Galloway, this is awesome for everybody that's out there listening. Please, man it forward. Share this conversation. This might be a good one to just you know sit and discuss with with a few friends. <clears throat> have some discourse about what we talked about in this episode, and uh, we'll have all the links to Professor Galloway's podcast and, and books and website in the show notes. But Professor Galloway, anywhere that you would like them to go where they can just get everything that, uh, everything that you put out?
1: Uh, it's a generous question. So my podcast, the Prof G podcast, Pivot podcast, and then at Prof Galloway, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter, No Mercy No Malice. It talks about mostly economics, but occasionally I talk about relationships.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thanks for everybody for tuning in. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Thanks, Connor.